valley was gone. We hear that the Debbie is there, but we never get up to the cards and bring the breakfast up. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of God's Own Scale podcast, where we talk all things 6mm. In this episode I talk to Mr Robert Dunlop, who many of you will know from the huge World War 1 games he produces, in particular uh, those displayed at the Joy of Six, and this year's production was no exception, representing the Battle of Nyalalaipa from the Eastern Front in 1914. No, I hadn't heard of it either, but uh, it was a fascinating game, and uh, you'll hear Robert talk a bit about that during the forthcoming interview. For pictures of that game, as well as many others that he has done over the years, including an absolutely enormous uh, recreation of the Battle of the Somme, uh, you need to check out his website at uh, greatwarspearhead.com. Uh, once again, thank you to everyone who's listened, downloaded, shared and commented on the first episodes. The encouragement and support has been truly overwhelming and inspired me to push on with this one-man project. You can hear much more about my plans for the future and forthcoming interviews at the end of this podcast. Following some feedback on the last show on my interview with Peter Riley, I just wanted to apologise if my use of the term Indian uh, upset anyone. Uh, no offence was intended, but I am very conscious of how words and phrases can cause offence if used in the wrong context and uh, without thought. So uh, do accept my apologies if um, my use of that word seemed um, out out of order. Okay, that's out of the way. I'll just give you a quick hobby update, if that's okay, uh, before we move on to the um, interview proper. As I record this, the other partisan was yesterday. And some of you may have seen um, on Twitter or on Facebook uh, the picture of the massive figures I picked up from Bacchus, uh, which I'd pre-ordered. My conscience is clear, however, as the contents form what should be the majority of my painting for the rest of this year. So the main uh, bulk of those figures were American Civil War uh, to play the Ultra Freedom and Teatum scenario. Ever since watching the Little Wars TV Guys episode where they refight the battle, I've had a real desire to play that scenario. I'm a huge Civil War fan anyway, um, so it's an obvious route for me to go. Uh, Antietam is one of the great ifs of the Civil War uh, that could potentially have ended uh, the, the war in September 1862 if things had gone slightly differently, uh, but obviously as we know uh, they didn't. Uh, the rest of the figures in the uh, pre-order are for the Mons scenario from the Great War Spearhead rulebook, which amounts to two divisions of Germans and one of BEF. Uh, as you'll know, and here in the forthcoming interview, the Great War is a, another real passion of mine. And to start gaming it in 6mm, well, where better to start than the first major engagement of the BEF on the Western Front. Gaming-wise, not a lot to report other than a World War One aerial dogfight at the Stoke Club last Friday. Uh, that was using a set of rules uh, from a publisher called Paragon. I forget the exact title of the, the rules, but uh, they were written in 1977, believe it or not, 42 years ago. Uh, Phil Colcott, one of the veterans from uh, the Stoke Club, ran the game for, I think there's five of us, Phil joined in as well and uh, um, immense fun was had despite my uh, pilot getting shot up um, in the third turn of the game by uh, Phil uh, I was flying a camel 
um, and Phil managed a direct hit onto uh, the fuselage of my plane which ended up killing my pilot and uh, down I went but it, it was great fun I did uh, I did become resurrected let's say um, and Phil gave me a, a pup uh, I think it's a Sopworth pup I may be wrong um, to carry on the game with and I did end up managing to get uh, a couple of very lucky shots onto uh, Alan Mountford's plane and uh, set it on fire sending it spiralling to the ground so that was uh, a first confirmed kill for my uh, freshly reincarnated pilot. Uh, Phil used those rules when they were first uh, uh, first released back in 1977 and I, I do believe that the, the planes that we used which were all well they're on they're available from Heroics and Ross now I'm not entirely sure who first produced them it may have been Skytrax may have been Navwar one of those companies but they're certainly now available from Heroics and Ross but uh, Phil's had, had those planes um, for the best part of 40 years and painted them up lovingly they, they really are very nice uh, and it just goes to show that a good set of rules is still good no matter when they are written so um, and they are in the typical old style of a A5 booklet uh, stapled through the middle um, typed up on a typewriter probably I would imagine uh, but uh, yeah they, get, they gave a great game and I may talk about those rules in a future episode uh, fortun fortunately I managed to bag a copy at the show yesterday so hopefully there will be more to come uh, on the aerial aspect of World War I um, during the podcast one more thing to say before we move on to the interview I've just finished rereading The Face of Battle by John Keegan now this is a book that I first heard about as a recommendation on the Two Fat Lardies podcast, podcast uh, back in their first episode I believe um, during which I think it was Richard uh, heartily recommended it and I will heartily forward on that recommendation because it is an, an incredible book um, I read it uh, probably six months ago after first hearing uh, the Oddcast and I've recently reread it this last couple of weeks and it, it is an incredibly impactful book um, probably one of the most impactful and interesting books on war warfare that I've ever read uh, Keegan discusses three battles uh, during the course of the book Agincourt, Waterloo and the Somme uh, geographically all relatively f close together actually uh, but separated obviously by around about 500 years uh, it's not a blow by blow account of each battle but uh, it looks at each battle in context and relative to each other uh, in a kind of bottom up perspective of the, the soldier on the ground who's actually doing the fighting covering every aspect of how combat, combat of the time was prosecuted and affected the common soldier it is visceral in parts where it discusses the damage inflicted upon the human body uh, during the various forms of combat uh, but its strength for me is in the comparison of how war was waged, waged over the course of those 500 or so years uh, and how command and control developed from the point of uh, the army leader of the king as in the case of Agincourt being in the thick of the fighting to uh, World War One, where generals were several miles behind the lines uh, but highly recommended uh, take a look at Amazon where you'll find it r fairly cheaply it's also available on Audible I do believe so uh, if you consume your books 
through Audible, which uh, I, I also consume books through Audible. I think it's a great resource uh, when you've run out of podcasts to listen to. Uh, okay, enough of me wittering on. Uh, here is the interview with Robert. Let's talk about six. Mademoiselle from Thanks very much for joining me, uh, Robert. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to, for you to uh, come to us. I, I know that uh, we did have a failed attempt at the Joy of Six. I had many failed attempts at recording things at the Joy of Six, uh, and yours was one of them, unfortunately. So I do apologise for that. It's great to to have you to come and uh, speak to the God's Own Scale podcast uh, tonight and taking the time out. I really just wanted to make a start by uh, getting to know who uh, Mr. Robert Dunlop is uh, as regards the hobby and wargaming is concerned. So could you just give us a bit of a background and a bit of a a pitch as, as to what your hobby and wargaming background is and how you came to be so interested in the First World War? Yeah, sure. Um, good to be on the the podcast, actually. So lovely to connect up, and thank you for the invitation. Yes, my background is that I was born in New Zealand and grew up there. And when I was ten years old, we used to travel into the city of Auckland, and there was a hobby shop that sold Airfix models and of course uh, many listeners will be familiar with the fx some of the first um, mass-produced figures that were ever available i remember picking up uh, two sets one british and one german first world war and my grandfather had served as an anzac soldier in the first world war and he lived quite close to us so i used to go along Unlike most veterans, he talked quite a lot about his experiences. So I was interested to to use the figures as a way of kind of linking up with what he had talked about. And then over the years, obviously, I, I dabbled in a number of different uh, scales, different uh, eras, samurai, English Civil War, Second World War. But I kept drifting back to the First World War, and it was the introduction of the Great War Spearhead rule set that basically allowed me to start looking at First World War actions in order to try and understand how they were fought and why there were such difficulties. So that's really the, the, the background to a journey that started more than 50 years ago. And today is is very much um, focused around First World War and six millimeter wargaming. Excellent. Those those airfix. I think I think many people listening and myself included uh, began their journey with those airfix figures. And I, I well remember those First World War those two First World War sets. I'm not sure if they did anything other than the um, the one box of British and the one box of German. I can't quite remember now, but that was certainly my introduction as well. Nothing too serious uh, above uh, 
throwing a, a marble at them, I think, to be honest, from my perspective, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure many did back in the day. But uh, and, and and that uh, that Waterloo set that came out, I don't know if you remember that with Le Hayes oh, yeah. in it. Yeah. So I think I think that's when I felt like I was a proper war gamer. But even then, it was it was just rolling a dice to count how many uh, casualties. Uh, 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 were caused on each side, but uh, that's that's fascinating. So you've you've got a real familial link then going back to the war with your grandfather. Did you manage to record any of his um, anecdotes, or I, I take it you were sat on his knee or at, at his feet, and he's recounting these stories to you? Oh yes, I used to sit at his feet. He would he would always talk about it in the third person. Interestingly, he talked about the various battles that he was involved in. So he, as a New Zealand soldier, was involved in Messine, where he was wounded, and then he fought in Third Ypres, and then all of the various actions that the New Zealand Division was engaged in throughout the um, last year of the war. And I just knew from the way he talked about it that it was a very difficult experience and had clearly left him with these deep memories of of things that he'd done and i guess it was really wanting to understand that but the things that really stood out for me were the 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 stories and songs the the stories that they told each other the jokes that they had and the songs that they used to sing and those stick in my memory for sure they it reminded me of the film recently that um, Peter Jackson put together with the colorized um, uh, Battle of the Somme. Yeah. And it finishes with them singing the the famous song about the the lady from Armentier. And yes. it just, it brought back so many memories of my grandfather. Yeah, so that, that, that song is one of the, uh, the link songs that I use within uh, the podcast, actually. Um, there's a fantastic website, and I, f- I forget what it's called now, uh, but there's there's recordings uh, from the period from each year of the war, and I, I use each one of those as a link into into the next part of the uh, the podcast. And uh, the, the Mademoiselle from Armentiers is uh, is one of it's one of my favourites. I've I constantly find myself singing it, Robert, as I'm yeah. uh, going about my working day and yeah. annoying my colleagues. But uh, but there you go. So that's that's great. So he was he was on the Western Front then. Um, for some reason, I made the automatic assumption uh, that he was uh, Gallipoli, but uh, he was he was on the Western Front. That's right. So the first New Zealand soldiers went to Egypt, and as they were training, they became involved in the defence of the Suez Canal, and then they went over to Gallipoli. They landed at Anzac Cove, and obviously fought on the peninsula but the vast majority of New Zealand soldiers were never in Gallipoli. He didn't land in Europe until about August, no it'd be slightly earlier than that because he was at Messine so it was roughly May of 1917. Have you been over there to visit the New Zealand memorials? Oh, for sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm just back from there, uh, and I know we communicated actually whilst I was over in Belgium, and for the it's the first first time in many years that I've done the southern sector of the Ypres salient, 
and I took some friends to the New Zealand Memorial and the, the large cemetery at Messine itself. And it, it's quite a, all of these cemeteries and, and these fields are all inspiring places, aren't they? But I know there's a, a particular reason that there's a memorial at Messine and uh, to the New Zealand soldiers and at several other places. Uh, they're not represented on the Menin Gate, are they? No, no. There's another one near Flair on the Somme because the first major action that the New Zealanders were involved in was the first time that tanks were used. And then there's other memorials dotted around that uh, represent some of the actions in the last 100 days. But the the two main ones are Messine Ridge and, and Flair. Yes. Uh, there's so, I've read some story about um, the New Zealand authorities wanting their own memorial to uh, the New Zealand soldiers, which is why they're located at the places of the fighting as opposed to at mm. this one uh, local mon uh, centralised monument that, uh, uh, that we have in uh, Ypres itself. But that's a fascinating story. I've, I think I've communicated to yourself before that I've got a relative that uh, was at Tietbal on the mm. Somme. I don't know very much about him at all. And to, for you to have had that sort of face-to-face -face and uh, conversations with your grandfather is a real connection, isn't it, that uh, we, sadly we, we haven't got anymore. Well, it was very special. And when I war game now for the First World War, particularly the Western Front, I'm particularly mindful that it's partly in memory of not only my grandfather, but I remember him producing photographs that German soldiers had given him of themselves and one particular soldier who was obviously dying and he gave my grandfather the photo of his wife and child. And so it's kind of a, a way of commemorating what those men had to, to do, as much as it is about understanding the, the tactics, etc., that we used at the time. Wow, that's an incredibly uh, personal account, isn't it? And I think we too often forget just what any of the conflicts that we war game, but in particular for me, the, the First World War, just what these places were like. And, and also that human aspect of the First World War in that quite often the soldiers were within talking distance of each other across the trenches and that there would be passages where one side was allowed to collect the dead and there'd be a ceasefire and that we'd have this swapping of photographs. I've heard about this before, but obviously you've got that, that uh, familial connection. Have you still got those photographs? The family still have them uh, yeah. back in New Zealand. I, I don't, but they also have a collection of woodbine cards yes in pristine condition wow which my my grandfather collected and he bought back a german map of um part of france so there are a number of things number of memorabilia that he had which he showed me that obviously again reinforced that that personal connection but it was interesting because I, I I think it was the photograph of this soldier that prompted me to start reading about the German experiences of the war as well. And so I'd, I'd learned some German at school, 
and I just kind of resurrected that and began buying books written in German at the time, um, personal anecdotes as well as uh, a lot of the memoirs of the various generals and then the German official histories, the regimental histories. And over the years, I've built up quite a library of essentially, you know, views from the other side of the wire. Yes. And that's tremendously helpful in recreating some of the battles because obviously it brings that different perspective to bear. Yeah. But it's but it's also about understanding what it was like for the men themselves and what it was that underpinned, you know, the German um, approach to the war. Because I remember there were a number of books written some while back, and, and many listeners will be familiar with, if not read, the likes of, you know, Lions Led by Donkeys, yeah. which, which, which gave the, well, not the impression, but, but very strongly argued that the British generals were just complete numpties and had no idea what they were doing. And, and just kind of ran the battles from way back in the chateaus and didn't much care about the casualties, etc. But I remember my grandfather saying, you know, how tremendously dogged the German soldiers were. They were always well-trained. They fought to the end. They were really skilled. And he said it was going to take everything to be able to defeat them because they just were so good and so determined. And essentially the war was, was about two sides that were totally determined to see it through. And there was no quick win. There was no easy way where people talk about the learning curve. You know, if only people had learned a lot quicker, the war would have been over sooner. Well, no, it wasn't going to be like that. And I think it was my grandfather's insights that really helped me at a very young age to appreciate there was a lot more to this than was then in the popular press. And obviously, having read now many of the accounts of um, the German regiments, German soldiers, etc., yes, I've come to appreciate that it was that dogged determination and skill that was so critical to maintaining the, the war for as long as it, as it did and, and making it incredibly difficult to to shift the the needle until there'd been significant losses on both sides absolutely yes the i think and i'm 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 glad to say that modern study would challenge the lines led by donkeys idea that really were it's it's very easy for us to put modern sensibilities and and modern thinking onto the uh, the years between 1914 and 1918 we we had the 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 tactics and the strategy and the operational overview that we had at the time and and those generals did the best with it i'm not saying i'm not an apologist certainly for the likes of haig or rawlinson or whoever and and undoubtedly there were mistakes made but i refuse to believe that uh, the these guys were donkeys they were professional soldiers who who had the the will to uh, send men to their deaths for that greater good, and that's why that's when the war turned into a war of attrition, isn't it? It was basically last man standing that that led to that led to the armistice in 1918, and and certainly to have that German perspective, I, I think is probably fairly unique. Actually, I'm, I'm not entirely sure of how 
readily available English language sources are of the German approach. I know there's a very good book called Ring of Steel, I think it's called, which is in, is in the English language. I think it's written by an Englishman, actually. But it's it's the one perspective from the other side of the wire. But if you've got if you've had that experience of looking at the regimental diaries and, and the official war histories in the in the native language, that must bring certainly a different perspective to what we on the Allied side um, and the ancestors of the Allies would have uh, seen and thought about the war. Well, it, it factors into the the historical games that that I've run over the years. I've not really been so interested in what-if scenarios. They're, they can be fun. So absolutely, we've been involved in some, some really interesting um, scenarios that have been developed, for example, with Robin Sutton's scenario generator that's um, linked to the Great War Spearhead rule set. Mm. And the, there's a lot to be said for that. But I, I'm personally interested in understanding how the terrain and other factors influence the way that the major battles played out. When I, when I first started reading around the First World War, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I knew about Gallipoli first up because obviously in New Zealand, we don't celebrate Armistice Day. Um, we have what's called Anzac Day, which is the 25th of April, and it commemorates the landings of the Australian and New Zealand forces in Anzac Cove on Gallipoli. And so every year, returned servicemen, as they're called, which included my grandfather, would go out in the morning and they would commemorate the First World War and then obviously subsequent wars, um, Second Korean and so forth. And Therefore, you know, Gallipoli was very much in the forefront of my interest, and I read the um, official history of the Gallipoli campaign, and I was a Boy Scout, so I knew how to read um, maps and contours, and I remember looking at the maps of the area and thinking, my goodness, how would you ever wargame something like this? Yes, because the terrain is so steep and rugged. But in my in the back of my mind, from then on, was always how could I do this? How could I get to a position where I could actually run that type of game and understand how the landings work the way they did? So interestingly, over the years, the, you know, while I was kind of involved in other periods and other scales, I didn't really give that much thought to it. But in around about 2002, I guess it was, um, that was when Great War Spearhead came out. And I was able to start rethinking the First World War. And one of the first things I set about doing was to create terrain boards based on contours of the Somme battlefield. And I played a couple of games and I thought, yes, I, I can see why that happened the way it did. If you have that ridge there and, and so on and so forth. But the problem was with terrain boards, I you know, you were struggling to think, well, how could I ever use it for anything else? Yes. And that set me on a journey of trying to figure how I could recreate historical battlefields anywhere, any period, 
and be able to take them down again. And the second kind of big thing that happened was not long after that, a group of us got together in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, there's a group of us that were all interested in Great War Spearhead. I travelled over from England because I was living and working here then. And we went. I went back and we, we set out three table tennis tables, end on end. Yeah. So something like 27 feet by five, six feet, something like that. And we played out the first Battle of the Marne and we had several players on each side and it was just fascinating and I thought I wonder if I could do something in time for 2014 so it was about 10 years off but I knew that if I was going to do something the the full scale of the first battle of the Marne I needed to start at that stage so I just systematically began painting up figures and 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 getting everything ready and it was during that time that I came across the hexon terrain system that Calistra has developed and I I could see how I could recreate exactly the contours if you think of a a hexon piece it's about uh, almost a centimeter high and they're not too high that you get very distinct kind of plateau-like effect but they're high enough that you could build up these 20-meter contours. So I actually recreated approximately 50 miles of battlefield using Hexon terrain. And I, I won't tell you how many I bought, but... Good grief. <laughs> we, <That's> a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. And we bought, um, at that time, there were these heavy felt battle mats, which when you laid them over the Hexons, they softly... Uh, took on the the contours without any sort of sharp edges to it. So you didn't have that hexagon look to the battlefield. And then Timecast kindly produced for me the latex roads, again in great numbers. And we went over to the the Marne battlefield, uh, to a a town called Dormont, which is on the Marne River in the middle of the Champagne region. And they gave us access to the huge commemorative uh, chapel which is on the the edge of the Marne River and we they bought us all the tables and they, we just set them up and we had the equivalent of 50 miles of, of battlefield at a scale of one inch to 100 yards and more than 10,000 figures and we reproduced the whole of the first battle of the Marne. How, how many figures? It was more than 10,000. Oh my goodness me. 50 miles up front and 10,000 figures on that table. My, interestingly, I've, I've, um, that's documented, isn't it? On, um, yes. The, is it the Great War Spearhead website? It is, yeah, greatwarspearhead.com. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you run that or is that Sean's? Uh, no, 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 I run that. You uh, run that, right, yes. yes. Yep. Yeah, I was, I was checking it out actually before we started recording and, it it must that must have been absolutely incredible to be on the battlefield in that memorial chapel, recreating the action that had taken place there a hundred years previously. I can't imagine how that felt. That must have been amazing. It was unbelievable. We had the the first run at it to just see if it could, we could do it. Um, they gave us the chateau, which is down just down the hill from the the chapel. And that meant we could prove that 
the layout worked and we had enough hexons and other bits and bobs. So we, we had everything figured out and we just went back again for the the, the actual dates of the battle and, and the chapel was opened up to the public and it was hundreds of people came from all around. And what was there were two things that really stood out. There were lots of people came and said, oh, that's where we live. That's our town. Because they wow. could see from the way we'd set up the towns. Uh, we used Paper Terrain, um, the company that produces card-based houses. We'd, yes. We'd, We'd use their three millimeter scale to build the towns because obviously there were, I forget how many now, but you know, there were large numbers of villages and towns that we yeah. had to build. And people could see from the layout, they recognized the, the ridge lines, the river, the, where the rivers were. And it wow. was wonderful. Oh my goodness. And you had, you had, um, Folks that you wouldn't normally associate with wargaming. So, so we had a number of older women came in, and they were particularly interested to pick up the stands, yeah. which you know, thirty millimeter by thirty millimeter um, stands, each of which was roughly meant to be a hundred hundred yards by a hundred yards, and two hundred and fifty men. Yeah. And you could you could just see these. Hundreds and hundreds of stands, and and people immediately understood the scale. Yes. The second thing was that obviously we represented the um, British Expeditionary Force because they were part of that battle, and we had the sector that that the BEF was involved in with a lot of cavalry and uh, obviously um, the different coloured uniforms you could you could pick out. And there was a, an older gentleman who came. And he was in his late 80s, and his father had served in one of the cavalry regiments in the Battle of the Marne. Oh my goodness. And he, he was absolutely amazed, because it, it finally helped him to understand what his father had done. Yes. And then the last thing, which was so funny, is almost every French visitor then said, where are the taxis? Uh, <laughs> the taxis of the Marne. <laughs> they all knew about the taxis of the really? Marne. Really? Oh my goodness! Well, I mean, this, as you know, this is a six mil scale dedicated podcast, and I constantly bang the drum to say that six mil allows us to do precisely what you have done there, Robert. And I know we're going to talk about some some of your later ventures, but. Was was the Marne your first big uh, exhibition? It was the first big exhibition, yes. I mean, the the sort of run at it we had in Christchurch was the first biggish game that I'd I'd had a taste of. Yeah. But it was on flat tables with right. with no hills, etc. Yeah. Whereas the first Battle of the Marne that we did in 2014, the hundredth anniversary, was absolutely a a massive demonstration that. The size of the figures, coupled with you know the enormity of the the layout, just had huge impact. So I knew then we could pretty much do anything we wanted after that. Yeah, that, I guess that was almost a proof of concept for you to yep, say that this, this is achievable. And just coming back to the size of the figures that you use in on a twenty foot table, that really conveys, doesn't it, the enormity. Uh, of these battles which are very difficult i think sometimes to 
grasp if you're just looking at a map or reading an account or you might see um, some of the the footage uh, some of the grainy footage from from the war on a documentary mm. those are always very the documentaries or the sorry the footage is very focused on and they're quite often recreated weren't they or simulated they weren't actually right uh, footage of, uh, of of real combat but it would give you an idea but you basically see half a dozen men climbing out of a trench or something but to stand i guess at one end of that table and look down the length of it towards the far end with this rolling landscape with the rivers the villages the roads and then the six mil figures uh, on it, then I can't think that there's any other way of being able to grasp the enormity of what we're representing. Exactly. And and to me, the reaction of the French public, where they could they could see where they lived, yeah. said it all. Because you, you can certainly have huge tables with lots of 28 mil figures on. You know, recently there was the large um, refight, for example, of the Battle of Waterloo that yes. was staged up in Glasgow. And that's very impressive, clearly. But the fundamental difference is this ability to see things in, in, the, in the scale that they would have, you know, if you were an aerial observer. And that's what's so different about the six mil scale and being able to put on such big battles. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and part of me, it, it being mischievous, would say that the, the this great replay of the Battle of Waterloo might have looked a little bit better in six mil. You might, you might. Have <laughs> I, couldn't possibly, <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying that. I'd, I'm just being mischievous, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> um, so just, just between so, you and I. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll keep that between you and me and the gatepost. Yeah. <laughs> so just before we move on to some of the the other games that uh, you you've put on over the years so the great war spearhead set the original set came out in the early 2000s is that right and then that's right mm-hmm. version two how long has that been out now uh version two's been out about five years now okay and and were you part of the development of that well version two was really just a consolidation of what had been a supplement where previously you had to have the spearhead rule set and the Great War spearhead ah. rule set sitting side by side. Yeah. And there would be certain sections that you would need to refer to. And it was always a little bit difficult um, for, for new players. Um, for those that are familiar with spearhead, it was fine. But it was really bringing the two together. and We, we hardly made any changes whatsoever the only minor, very, very minor changes were things like removing the Mad Minute, um, an extra benefit to to the early war British soldiers. Because actually, when you read about what happened from a German perspective, the Mad Minute wasn't more impressive than what the Germans were able to deliver or the French were able to deliver with the controlled rifle fire. Yeah. which was known at that time as musketry. And it was just things like that over the years, which the the, the in-depth reading had led to us being able to drop a few of those. But the rest of it, probably 99.9% of it was unchanged. It's just that we merged it so that it became one single whole. Right. So did you work directly with Sean on, on the development then of this as a standalone set of rules as opposed to a supplement? 
For sure, yeah. No, Sean was very much at the forefront of developing the original Great War Spearhead supplement. And um, he and I have been in touch ever since then and have collaborated uh, not only on the rules, but the various supplements that have been produced as well. The scenario supplements for the first Battle of the Marne, for example, or the early battles that took place on, on the Eastern Front. Most recently, Mesopotamia, and the one I'm working on at the moment is back to the one I was most interested in all those years ago, Gallipoli. Fantastic. I've, I've, um, I'm in touch with Sean on Facebook, actually, and I've mentioned tonight that uh, we are we are talking and recording, and I do hope to get Sean uh, on, onto the podcast in the future to talk about uh, Great War Spearhead, because although I've not actually played the, the, the game yet, I, I do own the rules, and my my big plan for Joy of Six, well, it's not a big plan compared to your own, but uh, my, my small contribution will be a game at Joy of Six next year with the uh, Tietval, uh scenario from that rule book. So um, I'm very much looking forward to diving in and uh, and giving it a go. So how, how many supplements uh, are out at the moment? Is it three? No, it's um, five at the moment. Oh, crikey. And we've got, um, as I say, Gallipoli is underway and... I've got two supplements on tanks, uh, one for basically 1916 through to the end of Cambrai, and then one for 1918. And and that's been tremendously interesting doing the playtesting for that, um, reading up particularly about the German experience of facing tanks. So, yeah, that that's I'm really looking forward to that. And obviously Gallipoli, which, which I'm working on at the moment, is so interesting now that I can build the, the terrain as rugged as it was. I've been able to replay the Anzac Cove landings. I'm just currently on the Sari Bayer scenario, which is where the New Zealanders um, took Chanak Bayer, the um, high ground, and held it for a period before losing it to a counterattack from the, the Ottomans. It, it's unbelievable to be able to do it i really really enjoyed it so very excited at that that's going to be um extraordinary that one i'm putting in some extra scenarios and you know in case people had been more aggressive on the day and had got further inland so yeah look look out for that one it should be sometime hopefully before the end of this year fantastic i think i've seen um one or two pictures that you posted online already um where you're conveying the the vertical height as opposed to the yeah. horizontal picture. There's the vertical nature and you've got a, a couple of stands of figures and then this huge sort of uh, vista climbing, yeah. uh, climbing behind there. It looks, it looks stunning. It really conveys that sense of space. I think uh, Gallipoli is not something um, I'm, I'm very well read up on. I've got, I'm just looking at my bookshelf to my left here. I've got uh, a Peter Hart, uh, book on Gallipoli. Oh yeah, I, yeah I picked that's a good it one. Towards, uh, uh, the end of last month, but uh, I've not I've not broken the spine of that yet. But hopefully uh, I'll get onto that soon. But yeah, so, so that that uh, that sense of scale and space that you can create when you haven't got lots of villages, rivers, and roads, and 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 woodlands to uh, to place on the table. It's I imagine uh, this is my impression. That it's a far sparser landscape. It is, and and interestingly, that that's one of the things that I've enjoyed is learning how to dress a table, so that you get 
as realistic a view of it as possible so that this obviously this the the figures themselves should always look impressive but they don't generally look as impressive as a huge napoleonic army with the very um massed ranks and the beautiful colors generally speaking you rely on the colors of the stands to help um because the the uniforms in the first world war were designed to blend in so you do you do more around the way the stand it's the base looks to to make the figures stand out but the the dressing of the table in the case of gallipoli with lots of uh, that flock that you get, which um, uh, Woodland Scenics produces, that you can pull apart into small pieces. Yes. And you, you just build up this scrub all across the the terrain and you leave it out of the valleys. And it just helps to highlight the visually where the sort of um, river valleys ran or the the bayers and and so on and then you've got the the mountain ranges with the hexons and it really looks the part and what i find fascinating because i needed to think then so these were obviously very steep rugged areas so what would be the movement penalties from a from a gaming perspective so then you go back to all the original documentation and you look in so the New Zealand brigade landed at this point in time and they were managed to reach um, Battleship Hill, which is, you know, halfway up towards the, the top of the high ground by such and such a time. So you can work out by, and I built a spreadsheet and you can see all the different timings of who was where and when. And I've gotten that information from the Ottoman records as well. And so now you can factor all of that in too so that you get more accurate sense of how the the men were able to move and, and what they could achieve on the day. So it's really amazing, really and really enjoying it. Some of the most exciting and interesting games I've played, I have to say. Yeah, I can't wait to see the results of that. I know that um, we did speak about this at the Joy of Six and you were telling me just how high you'll you'll be building the Hexon uh, that just how how high did that go? I can't quite remember. Uh well, it's getting on for nearly two feet above the table. Um, <laughs> that's at, that's at insane. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three hundred meters, and when you think there's, I use a hexon layer to represent a twenty meter contour. So yeah, yeah. That's a lot of hexon, Robert. <laughs> well, when you've done fifty miles of battlefield in France, yeah. you've got you've got a lot of hexon sitting in in big. Uh, Tough boxes. Yeah. Up in the uh, in the games room. So yeah. yeah. It's not not difficult to do Gallipoli. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it it sounds sounds a mammoth task to me, but a man of your your resources. <laughs> it sounds like uh, you'll you'll get there. Yes. So um, so after the Battle of the Marne, then in 1914, where did you move to from there? Well, obviously at that point we were then getting into the the war itself and the 100 years so basically tracked from from there through the different years of the war so the next important one that i was most interested in was the battle of neuve chapelle which was in 1915 in march and that was one of the first break-ins that occurred on the western front and in fact the british attack was so successful in that very first phase 
that Joffre, the the French um, commander, sent the after action report round to all of the French armies as a as a model of how to do it. And what I was interested in was to understand the the way in which that battle fought out and. Interestingly, you could fight that whole battle on a six-foot-by-four-foot table. When you contrast that with the 50-odd feet of table that we had in, in Domo, suddenly you see, well, actually, it's not that impressive, and you realize that the Germans could contain the break-in because they still controlled the flanks. And, you, and then you realize the commanders began to think, well, we have to widen the frontage. And so the next big one that we did was the Somme. And that was the one that I think you saw up in Joy of Six in Sheffield. That's right. And, and there we used, I think it was at least 14 feet of table. And we had the entire northern sector of that battle, the entire British area of the Battle of the Somme. The contrast in width was clearly a demonstration of one of the key ways in which the generals had uh, tried to to learn from what had happened in 1915. The next big one we did after that was actually the attack on Vimy Ridge. And Sean and I got together in the National Military Hospital, um, Museum rather, in Ottawa, in Canada. I f- flew over with bucket loads of soldiers and I didn't take the hexon terrain with me so we had to build something equivalent when I was there but I took all the mats and and so on and and um we put on the whole battle of Vimy Ridge in in the foyer of the the museum and again huge public interest and there was an attache um a German attache military attache who was working with the Canadian Army, and he came, he was a a major in in the German Army, and he came as well, and he stood, and he just was absolutely enthralled to see. We we had it um, up for about three days, and we just had hundreds and hundreds of visitors for that. And then I did Messine was the next one, which was obviously a sort of... um, commemorative thing for me because that was where my grandfather first fought and where he was uh, first wounded there of course we were reproducing the miles and miles of trenches and so forth i wanted to do 30 but i i really didn't have time so that's still on my to-do list but then as we got into 2018 i was mindful that joy of six would correspond roughly with what was called the battle of Metz which is Metz is a valley in France, not far from Paris. And the Germans had attacked in that area during the spring offensives of 1918. And the French counterattacked with tanks. And so we had 50 stands of French Saint-Germond and Schneider tanks, plus all the aircraft and so on. And that was brilliant. Just fabulous. Loved that. And the other one we did, which um, I was really thrilled by, was Cambrai. That was 2017. We actually did that one in Bovington. So the first major use of mass tanks by the British in the British Tank Museum. 
Ah, just awesome. Yeah. How many tanks were on the? How many stands of tanks did you have for there? That was a hundred. That was a hundred. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mark Mark Four um, British tanks. Yeah. Goodness yep. me. That I mean, the scale that you're talking about of of some of these games is just incredible. It's um. Yeah, it's awe-inspiring. Just to take you back down to the Battle of the Somme, because that's where I first became aware of you, actually following, following the pitch online and then um, actually seeing it at the Joy of Six. Mm. Um, so you took it from the very north of the British line at Goncourt, I guess, down to yeah. uh, where the French started. Is that right? You didn't that's do right. the French, did you? Uh, we had included the French, yes. Oh, you did so we, include the French, right. We basically went all the way down to the River Somme, which yeah. basically cut the battlefield in half. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we had the French uh, in that lower sector, yeah. Fantastic. And uh, I think one of the most evocative pictures I've, I've seen, I've, I've been wargaming probably for 35 years, I would guess, and probably one of the most evocative pictures I've ever seen of any table in any scale in any period was one taken from the mezzanine level yes. down onto your onto your table. And if you if you um, cropped out the floor that you can see around the table and put that as a black and white picture, that could almost be yes uh, a reconnaissance picture, couldn't it? Yeah, exactly right. And that's that's what I aim for because. Obviously, it it helps to give people that real sense of the scale of the battles, and you know, different people come and they they have relatives who who were at, as you say, Tepval yeah. or Serre or uh, Gomacourt or Montauban in the south or whatever, and that's really helpful and really important. But I think that the the other aspect of it is. The, the sort of grand tactical view that you can see why the Germans position their trenches the way they did along the way the ridge lines run, and you can see why the river was was such an obstacle at Ancre, and yeah. so on. And that for me is the the other sort of flip side of it. Yeah, definitely. I've I've just finished reading a book called The Face of Battle by John Keegan, which has mm. got quite a, a sizable chapter on the Somme in it and it's not a tale of which regiment went where but it's about the logistics of the battle and the the emotions of the men and mm. the, the reasons why the Schwaben redoubt was where it was and mm. the, uh, um, in fact this is something uh, I know we've discussed on mine actually about the um, the shells that were fired during the seven day mm. bombardment now my ignorant view stance was that well after seven days of bombardment the German lines must have been absolutely pulverized okay the wire wasn't cut but uh, in in certain places but it must have been a hell on earth but in actual fact as as you told me and uh, as is discussed in the book by John Keegan uh, 75 to 80 percent of the shells weren't high explosives they were Shell bursting, weren't they? Shrapnel. Yeah, shrapnel. Um, yeah. Which, albeit caused some disturbance of the earth, it certainly didn't do an awful lot of damage to the German lines. No, and, and obviously they were used later in the war a lot to contribute to these creeping barrages, as they were called. The creeping barrage would move forward at a certain speed, 100 um, yards every four minutes, and the men could keep up with it. But the interesting thing with the Somme was that when the barrage did come, 
they laid it on the lines and then moved it off the lines and then the men got out of the trenches. And obviously that made them easy targets for the Germans because they were unsuppressed, except in the southern part of the battlefield where the generals there decided they would use something that was more akin to a creeping barrage or, as in the case of the um, Ulster Division in around Teplau, they crept forward into no man's land and were right next to the German trenches ready to jump into them. So, in essence, it was like a creeping barrage for them. It's just insights like that which, as you pick up and read about and then able to reproduce in gaming terms, it really does uh, change perspectives on how the war was fought and in particular the way the generals thought about and then reacted to what was happening. Yeah, I've read uh, for 30-odd years about the war. I've visited the sites, but... To get down into that sort of granular detail, what you read is almost as important as how much you read, isn't it? You know, you can read general history after general history, which essentially tells the same story. But unless you've got that granular detail, accounts of what kind of shells were fired, what tactics were used with the the barrages, it's difficult to get that detail onto the tabletop, isn't it? Or else you, you end up just with a generic game that you might label as the Somme or Tietval or, or wherever. Um, but unless you get into that granular detail, then you're not really getting into the the devil of the detail, if you like, to represent what was happening at that particular time. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point because obviously we all play war games for different reasons and no one reason is any better than another. So for, for many players just having a good night out and having some nice-looking World War I figures and tanks is great, and, and I enjoy that as well. So there's that element to it, which which is about having fun, and, and that's really important. But for me, the thing that really has caught my interest is the way in which we can use wargaming to recreate as closely as possible some of the grand tactical things. So, for example, now skirmish war games in World War One scale, I find them difficult because, to be honest, if you you know when you look at the way the Somme played out, and you can have essentially an entire company destroyed by a machine gun that they can't even see. Yes, it's it's not even remotely on the same table, and probably not even two to three tables away if you had extra tables to make up for it. So. It is very hard with World War One to do it as a skirmish. I do, so that's again, you know, because I'm I'm kind of interested in some of those kinds of yeah. things. But no, there's no getting away from sitting down in, in the National Records Office in Kew and reading through the after action reports or the, the the war diaries, seeing the signatures of of somebody like Rawlinson or. Um, Haig himself, you know, penciling in, into the it, the it really helps to to bring to life, you know, this whole aspect of how these battles were planned and how they evolved. But once you set it running, it was incredibly difficult difficult to control. And then, as the war evolved, you had things like Third Battle of Ypres, for example. Passchendaele is what it's often referred to as everybody thinks of as this awful, awful 
battle, which characterized by, you know, men drowning. And, and there was certainly elements of that in, in some phases of that huge campaign. But what was equally interesting is that the British developed an intelligence system that in real time, their intelligence officers were going forward as the men followed the creeping barrages. They would dive into the dugouts, grab German documents, interrogate prisoners immediately, and discover exactly who and where the counterattack divisions were going to be placed and where they would come. And so in real time, they were reporting back to the artillery how to interdict these approach routes, etc. And, you know, the level of sophistication that was achieved was way beyond anything that people had talked about before. And it's just it's just fascinating. Absolutely. Doctrine changed immeasurably, didn't it, from August 1914 through to November 1918. It was, they were almost different wars weren't they and how they were prosecuted they were and and you can reproduce that on on these sort of larger scale battles even on a six by four foot table with part of a battle of the Somme or part of the battle of Metz. you see yourself beginning to think as a combined arms system you know how do you make sure you protect the tanks from the artillery which were the big killers so then you need you know, anti-artillery, so counter-battery fire becomes important, planning that out, making sure you've got aircraft that are capable of, you know, ground attack roles that could take on these guns and and from a German perspective how you would hide them in reverse slopes and, and so on and so forth. And all of that really comes to life once you've, you know, gained that understanding. And I've tried to bring all of that within the scenarios so that, you know, as others kind of, um, work with the supplements, whether it be with Great War Spearhead or with other rules, it doesn't matter as far as as what's used. People get a, sen- a true sense of what actually happened. And I think hopefully develop a greater respect and understanding, not just for the men who fought, because that's always been there, but for the way in which this thing was prosecuted. There is another side to it as well, and that is that For people who argue that, you know, the generals were were just ignorant and didn't know diddly squat, there's a view that there was something magic that they missed. And if they just, you know, had had a half a brain, they would have come up with some kind of magic killer thing that, that would have, you know, finished it. And the answer is, it isn't like that in war. And it's really important to understand that. You know, I remember watching the opening of the uh, first battle of Iraq and you had those um, smart bombs and you had Schwarzkopf, the the general, standing and saying, you know, just watch this and you'd see this bomb go down through the ventilator shaft of a building Mm. and everybody would laugh and and there was this sense that, oh wow, you know, we've made war into something that's really cool and and we can be very precise about and yet all these years on, it's still not over. People adapt, you know, the enemy always adapts. There's always consequences of what you do. And I want to convey some of that as well, that that this thing was no more nor less tragic than any other. Indeed, if you look at World War Two, and everybody goes, well, you know, if only World War One had been as, as good as World War Two to us, 
Well, actually, it was the Russians that bore the huge brunt of all of that. Mm. And if we'd have had to, to, to do what the Russians did, we would be celebrating that World War I had so few casualties. Yes. You make some really interesting points and, and certainly articulate the point that I was trying to make earlier uh, far better than I did around the, the lines led by donkeys myth. Uh, that I, I, I do believe it's a myth, um, that modern perspectives would, would say there is this magic tactic that we missed, uh, they missed and they couldn't see and it, was, it should have been so obvious to them, it was right in front of them. But as you've said so articulately, that wasn't how it was. It was a war of its time. You've got to remember the tactics that we entered the, the war with in 1914 were born out of the Boer War and the colonial era and there hadn't been a major a major conflict in Europe for a hundred years so there wasn't that experience of what total war meant as as large armies maneuvered uh, across Europe and then obviously ground down into the stalemate at the end of 1914 into 1915 but it's a, you make a very interesting point as well about the, the bombing in Iraq and this certainly isn't to end it as a political point at all but there's a lot of press coverage around this idea of firing a bomb down a, a ventilation shaft or a chimney from however many miles away. But it's very important to remember the human aspect because there's somebody underneath that ventilation shaft. And hopefully it's a military target, but, you know, not always a military target. And certainly from my trip uh, last month uh, around the Eeps aliens with another family who had no interest in history whatsoever, but found the area fascinating and, and the, the background of what happened there fascinating. And their daughter, who's, who's 15, was what might be called a typical sullen teenager being dragged around fields and cemeteries. That uh, <laughs> uh, She's very much of the Instagram generation. That uh, right. She's got no interest in it. Until I pointed out that every single one of these um, Portland stone mm. gravestones represents somebody like her. Mm. that's had uh, parents back home, uh, brothers and sisters and family and would have had ambitions for what he'd do with his life and, and he would have felt that fear and the terror and the the agony of, of what they were going through right up until that point where he's ended up uh, in a grave. And the, for me, as somebody who's passionate about the period, that's it's very important that we don't forget that. Yes, wargaming needs to be fun pastime it's we spend a hell of a lot of time in this hobby don't we whether it's making scenery painting figures researching playing the games oh, yes. play a hell, oh, of, yes. hell of a lot of time doing <laughs> it and money in some instances <laughs> uh but so you've you've got to enjoy it because um it's it's not like we want to don the uniforms ourselves and go and dig a trench in the back garden and and live in that for a, a while while somebody throws soil bombs at us it's you've got you've got to enjoy it as a pastime and have that passion for it but it's important that there's the remembrance aspect as well exactly exactly yeah. and you know for me the historical wargaming brings both of those two things together and i i i find now I, i'm not interested in other periods or scales particularly anymore and it's it's become something that i really enjoy and for that reason, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next sort of round of supplements. And even though we've gone through the centenary, there's still plenty to explore and, and still, you know, fun to be had as well. Yeah. So along, along the way, you're commemorating what happened and remembering what happened. 
but at the same time, you know, being able to learn from it and be able to sort of take those lessons forward in in all sorts of ways. So sometimes it's about the, the wargaming itself. You know, as you begin to appreciate what terrain does in terms of decision making, what the importance of reserves and so on and so forth, those are all things that you carry forward in other ways within within your gaming experience. So there's lots and lots of ways that I think it contributes. Yeah. Just let's touch on the the wargaming aspect in particular then, just uh, for the last part of, of this chat. So these these huge games that you've exhibited, have you, have you actually played them as games? Have you ever managed to reach a conclusion or is it more of that display and engagement with the, the bystanders who are watching it? Is that, is that more what it's about for you? Um, it depends, really. There have been a couple of games, for example... One that we did at Selwig one year, I think it was the, it was just after the, um, no, actually, that's right, it was 2014. So it was the 100, 100 year anniversary of First Eep. Obviously, those incredibly difficult uh, defensive battles that the BEF fought against the Germans trying to push around in the Ypres salient and and get the advance to Paris moving again. And so we did, I think it was 10 foot by 6 foot of first Ypres. And Sean came over and there was a whole group of us and we were able to play that through to conclusion. So with enough players, it works well. Other times, there's only been two or three of us. So what we've done is selected a particular area of the battlefield. So with the Somme, we selected the area around Montauban and obviously, which is where the the British made the significant advances that kind of broke through the German lines at that point. So so we focused on that because there didn't seem to be much point in any case reproducing anything other than Tetval, which was clearly a significant advance. Everywhere else was a complete failure. So that didn't seem to be too important to try and represent when we had such limited numbers of people. So Montauban was great. It was really interesting because you could see, you know, how it evolved historically as well. So those sorts of things um, are more dependent on the number of players that, that we have. Yeah, I don't know how many you had for your Nyla Liper game at uh, Jury of Six, but that se- you seem to have enough there because there was quite a lot of movement and dice rolling. That's and great. If, if I walked away for half an hour and came back, I could definitely see that there'd been some developments uh, on one flank or in the centre or whatever. So that that looked great because for me, I, it, yeah, I, w- I want to see the demonstration. I want to see the spectacle of these huge games, but it's also nice to see the game aspect rather than sort of a museum piece that's a static display. For me, it's also important that some dice get rolled and some figures get moved on, on these things. Yeah, and I think that that's a, a really interesting and important point. I mean, with this most recent game, which was obviously an Eastern Front game, Russians versus German, um, sorry, Austro-Hungarians, in what is now Ukraine, was Galicia at the time. So the battle that we fought was basically two army corps against each other, facing it off across a river. So you were basically taking on one of the most difficult military operations, which is an opposed crossing of a river. 
we were so fortunate that there was a father and his sons visiting from the US and he's a serving officer within the, the, the American army and he and his sons were very familiar with the spearhead rule set. So they just immediately picked it up and we had a blast. It was great fun. I think I spoke to, uh, I guess it must have been one of the sons then that uh, I spoke to that uh, he was talking about how he'd, he'd made an advance and got slaughtered and he was <laughs> contemplating his next uh, next move. So uh, that that was absolutely great, yeah. But in other situations, and again, I think, you know, this this is about the difference in the reasons why we play games. I, I think for some players it's important to have excitement from from the word go. And with something like an historical First World War game, particularly, you know, movement to contact across a very large battlefield, there's quite a lot of movement takes place before there's any dice rolling. Yes. So participation games I find somewhat more difficult because there's there's always a period where things are building up to what's then a very intense phase of combat and the gradual evolution of what will be the outcome. And and that isn't to every player's taste. I think a lot of people appreciate something that's much more kind of in your face with lots of action from the beginning. So So that's another reason why I think participation games, particularly First World War, can be more difficult. But what I am looking forward to is something which got me interested way back in the whole idea of these large mega games. And that was when the spearhead mega games used to be put on in the southwest of England, um, down Devon Way. And they would do the whole of D-Day or the whole of Kursk. Wow. And I sadly could never get to any of them, but I just used to watch and think, Oh my goodness, I could do that. And we're really looking forward to putting on something similar where over a long weekend, a whole group of people can get together, having thought about a battle plan ahead of time and, you know, being able to put it to the test over a three-day period on an, on a massive scale. So that's still very much in my mind as well for the future. And there where you've got a group of like-minded people who who are comfortable with the style of the rules and the fact that you have limited control. Because, again, a lot of people like to be able to go, oh, I can see a machine gun over there. I'm going to target everything on that and destroy it. Um, or I can tell that so-and-so is coming from over that side, so I'm just going to move everything across, you know, from my left-hand side to the right. And one of the great things about the spearhead rule sets in general, and obviously Great War spearhead in particular, is that it doesn't give you that ability. It's much more restrictive in terms of planning. You have to think very carefully before the game starts even about who's going to do what and when, and and it's just brilliant. I love that, but it's not everybody's cup of tea. So to that extent, I think, you know, enabling a group of like-minded players to get together, spend a long weekend and really play out across on a grand scale some of this thing I'm, I'm really looking forward to. I think it'll be really fun. Well, can I be the first to sign up, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> I will be there in a flash, absolutely. So you set the date, I'll be there. That sounds incredible. I was aware of those um, those mega games from, um, I mean, it's a good few years now, I think, isn't it? Must yeah, yeah. 
10 plus years ago at least maybe oh, early 2000s yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah um i remember following them and thinking that, that must be an incredible experience but to translate that into the large scale first world war games so for instance your game of the psalm or the marm if if that was something that we could play out over three days with like-minded people who understood the period understood the tactics understood the rules then um i think i'd be in wargaming heaven now i think that would be my bucket list uh complete if I yeah. got to play in something like that that sounds tremendous so the uh, staying on the wargame aspect then um these thousands of figures are you the sole painter collector purchaser i am or are yes, you i am i am indeed yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. your name actually pops up quite a lot on the Irregular Miniatures website uh, with painted examples of your work there in the First World War mm-hmm. uh, section. And then uh, there's obviously the, the Bacchus range. So what's your sort of paint? What's your approach to modelling and hobbying then uh, regarding the painting and the, the organisation and the basing? What's, what's your approach there? So the painting side of it, I think, is is something that I've always enjoyed going all the way back to the airfix models and getting Humbrol paints and sitting down and, you know, no shading or any of that, you know, the blue blues of the French and, and the the red coats and so on. So I've, I've always loved that element to it. But, of course, when you're talking about 10,000 figures – you need to come up with more creative ways of being able to manage that sort of scale of painting. So so one of the things that I was able to do was to get a really good quality airbrush and just be able to um, spray the, the earth colour of the bases and then spray the uniform colour and then put the stands onto a long stick, typically about three feet long with yeah. double-sided sellotape down the middle of it. And you just stand them all up in a row and then you just go down and you can obviously um, pick off highlight areas because, you know, the faces, the hands, and then highlight the arms and the legs without having to paint the whole uniform because that's all been done with the airbrush. Yeah. So that's been a huge help. Um, I painted up almost four core of figures for the joy of um, six in Sheffield, literally in about four months, oh, um, just you know part time because obviously I work as well. You know that's testament to to how you can do it. And I think over the years I've developed a, a style which which I'm really pleased with now. And when you as you say when you see those figures, the irregular miniatures or the Bacchus, they're, they're typically um, the base color of the uniform. And then two highlights, a right. slightly lighter color, and then a very highlight color, which is just literally a spot or a dab. So it's very quick to do. Yeah. And it really makes things like the arms and legs and so on really pop. And the great thing with, for example, the Bacchus figures is that they're stripped down of things like backpacks and, and bed rolls and so forth. So you haven't got a lot of the extra things that you have to worry about, yeah. and that makes a, a big difference. In, they in take all the time, don't they? The, the oh, bedrolls yeah. and the, the canteens and the oh, yeah. various packs. 
Um, so it's not sort of a black undercoat or a white undercoat. You're, you're spraying in the base coat of the uniform, are you? Yeah, I typically will give them a quick um, white undercoat oh, just okay. just to give something for the coat the other to stick to. Yeah. And then I'll use um, typically something from AK Interactive. They produce some some great um, color ranges for First World War um, base colors. Yeah. And, you know, they're all set up. Um, some of the Vallejo airbrush uh, paints are, are, are really useful. Again, as they give you the sort of deeper khaki color or the deeper um, blue that the French had or the field gray that the Germans had. So from there, I've taken to using the um, foundry triads, which mm-hmm. come pre-mixed with the different shades. And I typically will buy the the medium and lighter ones because obviously the base color is already there with the uniform. Mm-hmm. So with the Austro-Hungarians, for example, I had this darker sort of pipe gray and then used the British blue-gray triad, the medium and the very light, to give the um, the next two layers. And, you know, they really look hard on the table. Yeah. They do, yeah. I've followed some of the posts that you put up on the Backers Forum and elsewhere, and they they absolutely do look the part. They look lovely. And I think you're right. I think with 6mm, you've, you've got to go for that lighter shade, haven't you? Because otherwise, yeah. for example, I'm, I'm currently agonising over how I'm going to paint my uh, 1916 British because the uniform from what, okay, when it's on campaign, colours fade and mud and lack of washing facilities would affect the actual colour but if you look at the actual plates or look at uh, uniforms from the period um, the, the brown the the khaki was quite a dark brown wasn't it um, it's, a it's got a greeny tinge to it that's the yeah. key difference um, you, when you see the British brown of the second world war it's a very brown colour yeah whereas the the khaki uniforms because you, you we were getting people collecting money for servicemen and they were wearing World War One uniforms, and you see that sort of subtle greenish color. So what I've used for for them is the the khaki that you get with, say, Vallejo, um, which has a more greeny tint to it, and then the foundry drab in the light and medium shades to give you the sort of next layers. So if you take a British figure and you spray it or paint it the base uniform color if you've got an arm for example there'll be a it'll you you can clearly identify a forearm and an upper arm and so the the upper arm there'll be a a a piece that you do with the medium shade and then the lower forearm you do another piece that's just a bit of a line basically it doesn't reach the hand and it doesn't reach the elbow and then you just put a light blob of the very uh, lightest drab on top of that. And, yeah, it really makes it pop. I've, I've been making notes as, as you've been talking there, Robert. So, uh, the uh, partisan show is the, the other partisan show is this weekend. So um, I'm intended to shop for the various colours I need. I, I'm, I'm surrounded by about 400 pots of paint here, but I'm not sure I'll be able to find uh, the Vallejo khaki or those uh, those foundry colours, but I'll certainly look those out. Um, for the Sorry. satchels that they the, the British soldiers have on the, typically on the left side in the Bacchus figures range, for example, I use the foundry 
canvas triad and typically the the darker and the medium as opposed to the light which is almost white um is perfect and then for the water bottles what i do is the chestnut triad which works really well so you have this sort of deeper chestnut that you painted and then the lighter color and then a dot of the lightest and I use that for all of the figures range. And, you know, of course, they had different color water bottles in, in reality. But what you want with figures of six mil scale are, are contrasts, things that pop. And that's the key to it, I think, is, is having these colors that um, stand out when you see. So when I base them, I've used a variety of different options, but I really wanted something that was as close to the ground as possible. And then Litco came out with those ultra thin plywood bases. And they're fabulous. They they come in all different sizes. Ship them from the United States. And I put four figures as a company. Yeah. So approximately one figure per platoon, if you will. Yeah. And I did that in the beginning because I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I've got so many figures I need to paint. I, I just need to be economical with this. But I was worried that, you know, it would look a bit kind of sparse. But actually, what surprised me, the first time I put all of a a whole core of, and that's 96 stands roughly, onto a table, suddenly you had this mass effect. So I used superglue or whatever to, to actually glue the figures on. And then I used the acrylic uh, silicon external sealer to use for sealing around windows. It comes in oh, a brown a brown color. It's a little bit tricky to work with, but it doesn't warp the bases. Right. I found that painting with, you know, watered-down PVA, it would tend to warp some of the bases if they were quite quite thin. So that's why I went to using, and, and now I use it all the time. So you get the brown color covers the the light color of the base. So you don't need to paint the base. And yeah. then it's a naturally sticky substance that you can put flock against. And it takes a few hours, usually overnight, to fully cure. But it's flexible. Right. So you can use the same thing, for example, with the trenches if you wanted to put extra bits and pieces on them or more particularly the roads if you want to put flock along the sides if you use this silicon stuff it bends and flexes with the latex roads so it works really well and then i print labels just standard word document with um, all the different uh, unit numbers i don't do units historically i just number them from one company up through whatever and i Glue them on the bottom right-hand corner with just you know, stand, and then put the the brown silicon smear it across the base and flock it and uh, yeah and typically use different flocking patterns for different sides. Yeah. So it's, it's immediately obvious on the table which um, which figures belong to who. So yeah, that's how I do that. Two nice. two two cavalry per stand, which is a squadron in Great yeah. War Spearhead. Um, one tank per stand or um, uh, artillery, typically one artillery piece, which is which is usually a battery in, in gaming terms. Can you estimate how many of these figures you've painted over the years? It must be. Oh, it, yeah. it is literally thousands, isn't it? Oh, tens of thousands. Tens yeah. of thousands. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's a huge inspiration to me who's just starting out on this journey into the Great War in, in 6mm. I have played First World War games before, uh, most notably a set of rules called Square Bashing by Peter Pig in 15. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, I very much enjoyed, but possibly similar to yourself. I'm, I'm now looking in my war game to bring the history back into it. So that, that game is great. It represents a sort of a divisional level game. But I, w- I want the history now, so that's hence I'm in the research and purchasing phase for my game next year. Yeah. At some point, I've got to get paint onto some of these figures, which I'm a little bit nervous about, which is very odd because I've, I've painted tens of thousands of figures myself over the years. But because this is something that's really dear to my heart and I'm passionate about and I want to get absolutely right for the Joy 6 next year, I've, I've almost got this, this st- it might be called stage fright, I guess, in, yeah, uh, in, yeah, yeah. in, in a start. But uh, certainly uh, your own work, uh, Robert, has been incredibly inspirational to me as I've researched back over all, all of the battles and gone through the websites. And uh, after speaking to you at the Joy of Six and, and tonight as well, because I think it's an amazing achievement that you've completed with the huge games that you've put on so far. And I know you've got plans for the future, you're not stopping, are you? Now you, you've got the the plans oh, for the no. game and more supplements, which uh, I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah, so obviously we'll do the Eastern Front one at Selwig this year. That that just makes it easier to all set up and so on for for the day. Yeah. But but next year we're going to do um, the whole of the Suvla Bay landings and the attacks on Saribaya, the sort of big ridge that ran up off Anzac Cove in August uh, 1915. And again, for me, that's really important because it's one of the, the big areas that the New Zealanders fought in. And there was this wonderful diorama that Peter Jackson sponsored yeah. in New Zealand, which you know featured the New Zealanders on Chanak Bay. But having built the, the Saribaya range now and... I've got all of the um, maps ready for Suvla Bay, even down to things like the X-Lighters, which were the beetles that carried in the men and landed them, and the um, trenches I've done. <laughs> it's so funny. When I was at Joy of Six and speaking to the team from Timecast that sell the trenches, yes. they, said, oh, they said, oh, you buy them like other people buy trees. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> oh, dear. So, you, so you've got a fair, really few, fair few feet of that, have you? A fair few feet of that, well, absolutely. Well, we had to do, um, well, there was 14 feet of table for the Somme and two, three lines of trenches. So you, you can, you know, do the maths. And because they're squiggly lines, they're not, there's more than 14 feet per line. So, yeah, no, we, we had a fair few. But the ones we've done for um, Gallipoli, of course, you needed a, a more kind of Mediterranean look to them. So I've done all that now and, and all the watercourses as well. And so, yeah, next year that's what we'll do at the Joy of Six. We'll put on three tables of um, figures and, and mountain ranges and various things. And we'll do the whole of the Suvla Bay and Surrey Bay battles. Have you got a convoy of articulated lorries to transport this to Sheffield? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, we've got a collapsible, um, trolley now that we use because 
sometimes when you go to the big shows, the trolleys to bring all the stuff in are, are not available, so we bring, bring our own now. <laughs> now it's, become, it's, become a, it's become a real kind of um, uh, production when, when we do them. We know exactly how to do them now. The, my three sons, who I really appreciate, uh, have been tremendously supportive, and they come and they help, and we've got it down to a fine art. We, we know, you know, Build the hexon first, lay the thing on, then the roads, then the rivers, yada yada, and and yeah, pull it all down at the end is is in double quick time, and put it on the trolley, and away we go. So yeah, it's great. Really enjoy it now. You've got your homegrown logistic core then up there. Have you <laughs> <seen>? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so um, you've mentioned Selwig. That's October time, isn't it? Is that the next time people are going to be able to see your productions? It will be. It will be this year. Um, work-wise, it's been busy, so I've had to cut back. But in in the not-too-distant future, I'll be retiring from work. And when I do, that hopefully will open up the opportunity to, to do more of the um, the big shows as well. Have I, am I right in thinking I have seen you at Partizone with us um, with a Gallipoli-style game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. We did, we did um, the Anzac Cove landings uh, on the 25th of April, yeah. and we had the Anzac Division and the Australian Division landings. So we had uh, the offshore fleet represented by ships from Tumbling Dice and Navis Neptune, which is a, a German company that produces some of the World War One battleships that were involved in the naval gunfire support and then I had one 700 scale cutters that they were towed in by steam steamboats and then I had the Peter Pig Pirates range um, rowing boats so mm-hmm. it wasn't just the land-based element to it we had we had all of the the landings from you know basically shipped ashore as well so yeah you're yeah, right I remember been very impressed by the battle but I, I didn't make the link with yourself actually I think at the time when the story well, it was only a six by four table so yes right. you could have easily missed it <laughs> if I blinked I missed it yeah. uh, Robert it's been incredibly interesting to talk to you tonight I'm, it's, it is a period of history I'm most passionate about myself and to hear your own passion coming over has been awe inspiring so I do thank you for that one thing I'm doing at the moment is collecting uh, a reading list, a recommended reading list uh, for the period. So, that, uh, and I haven't prepped you with this question, but uh, if there was one book that you were to recommend to our readers to do with any aspect of the war from 14 through to 18, what would you recommend? Well, I think any of Jack Sheldon's books are well worth reading. So I think if somebody has a particular interest, as you do, for example, in the Somme, yeah. Then his book, The German Army on the Somme, is a good example. If somebody's interested in the early part of the war, he's got books on the German Army at, at Ypres and or Vimy Ridge, and it's it's so well written, beautifully written, but it's all predominantly from the German perspective, and I think it gives probably some of the best insights into the other side. I think there are a number of books which, like Peter Hart's books, are very interesting because they're very mu- they're much more sort of um, laced with anecdotes. 
and they bring that sort of personal element to life, but he wraps them in a very um, good... So the Glippley one that you mentioned is, is a super book. He's written similar for all periods of the war as well. And then I think for the very earliest um, period, one of the most interesting books was a book that was written quite soon after the war by someone called Selwyn Ting, T-Y-N-G. And he was a, I think he was an American, perhaps journalist, if I remember, who who then subsequently wrote about the evolution of those first weeks and months of the war. And it's as good as any I've ever read. Um, Selwyn Ting, T-Y-N-G, was that T-Y-N-G right? is his surname, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've not heard of him, so yeah. I shall... But, Look him up. There's there's some very interesting uh, specialized books around things like the artillery, or but if you look at something like Jack's books, they they give you a much wider perspective on a particular phase of the war. So from your perspective, reading his book, the German Army on the Somme, and he's written a second one which actually looks at the sort of higher command elements of it and how you know the the Germans planned and reacted to the British, superbly written, wonderfully um, researched, just super, super books to read. I'll be straight on, to, as soon as this recording's finished, I'm going to straight on to Amazon to have a look for those, okay. try and pick those up. Um, yeah, Peter, th- uh, sorry, uh, Robert, thank you so much for um, uh, taking the time out of your evening uh, to speak to me. It's uh, it, It's been fascinating to hear your insight into these huge games that you you've put on um and I, I do applaud you for the efforts that you've you've made both within the hobby and the six mil hobby community with the great war spearhead work um and yeah it's it's just an incredible achievement so thank you so much for coming and uh, and speaking to us no that's my pleasure sean i i really appreciate the the opportunity most particularly because i i do it to commemorate those who fought in those battles and those who died and to have the opportunity to just, you know, again, give them that respect is something that's really important to me. So I, I appreciate your comments, but it's all, you know, in terms of, of making sure that they're not forgotten. Great. Um, so if people want to uh, follow what you're doing or, or get in touch, how can they do that? Well, I think the easiest way is, uh, in terms of following what's happening, is through the Great War Spearhead, all one word, dot com website. There's a Yahoo group, which is a reference from the website, which is fabulous. A great, great group of people that that have gotten together over the years and, and discussed the battles. In terms of contacting me, then probably the easiest way is is through my um, hotmail address which yep. is Robert Dunlop, all one word, at hotmail.com. Great. Hopefully you won't get lots of unsolicited emails, uh, oh, Robert, that's... offering to sell you uh, uh, various vegetarian projects or something, and it'll be relevant, uh, relevant it... uh, topics that they want to talk about. <laughs> it'll make a difference from some of the products that, that, <laughs> that get offered me. So. That, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that part I can cope with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so uh, thanks once again uh, to uh, Mr. Robert Dunlop for uh, spending his time with me. So uh, we'll hand back to the studio. The long way to Tipperary.
Welcome back and a huge thank you to Robert for taking the time to talk to me. Hope you found that as interesting as I did. Uh, look out for his next production at the Joy of Six next year, which promises to be absolutely epic if uh, his uh, description of how he's going to use that hexon terrain is anything to go by. Uh, before I close the show, I wanted to give a shout out to some other podcasts worthy of a listen and each in their own way an inspiration for me to do this one. Uh, the obvious is Meeples and Miniatures. Um, it's the granddaddy of the UK podcasting scene going back 12 years, I think now. And if you search back through Neil and Mike's back catalogue, there's bound to be something of interest in there for you. Also, the Lardy Oddcast is the historical wargaming podcast bar none with Sid uh, for the U from the UK. Sid, Nick and Rich's knowledge and approach to the hobby and translating that knowledge onto the tabletop is well worth the price of admission. Well, obviously it's free, but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, Wargame Soldier and Strategy is uh, the uh, have their own house in-house podcast uh, for the magazine. There's a great, great mix of hobby content with many a roving report from shows around the country and various events, plus reviews and discussion of the latest hot topic. And as I record this, I've seen that the great wargaming survey produced by Wargames Soldier and Strategy has just hit over 10,000 responses. That is amazing, which breaks the record, I believe. And there's still uh, 11 days to go. So it's going to absolutely go through the roof. Um, if you haven't filled in uh, a response to the survey yet, I suggest you get over there. Uh, if you just Google the Great Wargaming Survey 2019, that'll take you to the Survey Monkey website where you can do that. Uh, also, the Veteran Gamer, which is uh, the first of two American podcasts that I'm going to recommend. The Veteran Gamer is Jay Arnold. Uh, it's a great cast with a great range of guests and content that'll be sure to inspire you to pick up uh, another project, I'm sure. I do hope Jay returns to the mic very soon. He's had a little bit uh, of a hiatus, but uh, judging by his Twitter content and feed, uh, he's looking to get back to the microphone very soon. Uh, then we come to Wargames Recon, uh, which is another veteran cast uh, from Jonathan Reinhardt. That's another good example of an all-encompassing sort of magazine-style cast willing to discuss any aspect of the hobby from new releases to events to rules to what's going on that gives a, a great insight into the American aspect of the hobby and the view of the hobby with the various big conventions and all the goings on uh, across the pond. Uh, I can't go without mentioning Henry Hyde who uh, produces an excellent podcast available early to his patrons but is released to the masses generally a week or so later. He interviews the great and the good of the hobby and it's always fascinating to hear what they have to say. The Rick Priestley interview was especially good so do go and have a listen to that. And as I said in the last podcast please throw some shekels Henry's way to support his Patreon. His content is really exemplary and deserves all support. I had the immense pleasure of meeting Henry on Sunday at the other partisan and he is as charming and erudite in person as he comes across in print and audio. So thank you Henry for your kind words of encouragement 
And if ever you would like to be the guest on the world's fifth best 6mm specific historical gaming podcast, I'd love to talk to you. Okay, that really is it then for this episode. Uh, next up will be an in-depth chat with Mr. Peter Berry. I don't think he needs any introduction, but needless to say, he's from Yorkshire. Likes to write the odd treatise on wargaming from t- time to time. And he does make the, f- the odd few 6mm figures in his spare time. Uh, it should be a fascinating chat. So thanks once again for listening. And until next time, keep talking about 6. Brother Bertie went away To do his bit the other day With the smile on his lips and his left hand And fixed upon his shoulder right and gay As the train moved out Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eye. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know. I'll be sick of the death, you don't, don't cry. Don't die. There's a silver lining in the sky. Robert, I'll, uh, I'll I'll end the recording at that point. But uh, yeah, fantastic. That has been the most enjoyable hour and a half I've had for some time listening to uh, you, you tell me about these um, these battles. That's incredible. The um, just while I've got you, then this this silicon paste that you use. Where where do you get that from? For the you base? can get that from any any hardware store. Right, um, it's not a hobby product. Not a hobby. Not product. a hobby product at all. Mm-hmm. No. Um, typically it comes in one of those um, long 
plastic tubes with a um, you, you need a gun for it. You know the oh yes, the corking type. Corking, thing. yes, yeah. that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. It's it's silicon corking. Right. But if you if you get the external um, weatherproof yeah. version in the brown. External weatherproof in brown. I shall be making a visit straight from work tomorrow to uh, my local uh, preferred DIY store and, and and finding it, some of that. It's slightly odd stuff to use. Um, it's very sticky. Yeah. So when you go to apply it, um, I've done it a couple of ways. One one way was to smear the base and then stick the figures into the the corking compound, and that oh, works okay. pretty well. The problem is it doesn't cover the part of the base that you've painted. Yeah. Now, in some cases, I've deliberately done that because I like the contrast between the flock and, say, a light grey of the base and then the pike grey of the yeah. soldier. So I've, I've kind of – but these days I stick the figures and then use a toothpick – to, to use small amounts of it. So I, I, I get um, – you can buy those um, pallets. They're, they're paper, basically, wax paper yeah. um, that you can – you know, they come as, as um, tear-off sheets in a, like an A4 size is the easiest one to get yeah. from, from any kind of art store. And you, you can use it to smear a blob on and then just use a toothpick to pick it off or sometimes a nail and and just you know um touch it around the the feet yeah and the lower part of the bases and then you can you you'll you'll get a feel for it you can just put a blob a larger blob on and then smear it around the rest of the base right and it um it as i say it, it'll take a while to set completely so it's normally overnight you should allow yeah but once it goes off it's it, it's really good and it doesn't warp the bases that's what i wanted well i mean i'm interested in these litco plywood bases i take it they're thinner than the sort of bases that the um, typical mdf bases that peter sells oh yeah 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 yep yeah, yeah, by a long a long way they they're literally wafer thin mm. um they're thinner than the Plastic ones that Peter Pig sells. Oh yes, yeah. They they literally are not even a millimeter. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they are fabulous. Um, you can get them any size. So typically for Great War Spearhead, it's inch and a quarter by inch and a quarter, and yeah. inch and a quarter by two and a half inches. And you can get them in blocks of a hundred. Right. So you can imagine I buy them blocks of a thousand at a time. <laughs> yes, sounds like you need that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, be making a, a small order for that as well, I think, then before the weekend. Robert, thanks again. Once again, thanks so much. I do appreciate your time. Um, I'll look up, look forward to catching up with you. Um, I'm probably not at Selwig actually this year. I think work, there's something in the way of Selwig for me this year, but um, I'll certainly be on in touch online and do you do salute um salute is what the big one in excel yeah no i've never been to salute 
Um, I haven't got any contacts there because typically what I've been able to do is, you know, email the various folks that organize these. Yeah. And get onto the, the, the demonstration games list. Yeah. But I don't know anybody at Salute. Yeah, it's, um, I'm told it's, it is, it can be tricky. I know that, uh, Pear Broden gets on there, but, um, I'm, I'm not in contact with anybody, to be honest, uh, in, involved with the organizing, but I do, uh, I do get down there every other year or so. It's hard, uh, for me, I would find it hard to get to when right. you've got a, a ton of stuff to take. Yes. Um, yeah. everything else is fine. You know, Selwig is that far, that bit further out from central London. Yeah. So there's plenty of parking and, but, but that area of London is, it's tough to get to. If you've got to yeah. drive it, I hate it. So no, it's not, yeah, not a, too. not a big one on that list. Uh, and, Bobby, and will you be, ba- sorry, carry on. No, no, go ahead. Uh, Bobby, so Bobbington is, uh, is one that you go to as well. Yeah, Bovington's one that I've been to. Um, the one in Reading, Warfare, is, oh, yes. is always yeah. is always a good one. That's over two days. Yeah. Which, do, you, um, do you put a game on down there, or? Yeah, I have done. Uh, not not the last couple of years, just because of work. Yeah. Yeah, and Partisan, obviously, you've, you've done. Was that just the ones that you've done, Partisan? Just the ones. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm up there on Sunday, uh, collecting. Uh, the next round of purchases for uh, Tietval next year from Peter, but um, uh, there's, th- to be honest, that you, there's not an awful lot uh, of participation or demo games at these shows. Um, there's a real paucity of them, I think, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a real shame, and that's why the Joy Six is so good, isn't it? That yeah. there's that collection of people of like minds that, yeah. that enjoy the scale for what it is and can adapt it. From yeah. the smallest game up to you know the size of game that you and Pear yeah. Broden put on. Um, yeah. So. And I and but, I think you know we talked about it before, but the participation element is much harder with um, the likes of Spearhead. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of movement to contact, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it just you know people quickly get bored with that if yeah. they're not if they're not into the historical element of it. Yeah. It, it it hasn't got enough action for them, which is fine. You know, that's that's not a criticism. That's just no. how it is. So I, you know, for me, I think it is about getting like-minded people and just having a great time and spending a day, as you said, you know, for visitors to come back and see. Oh, yeah, wow, things have moved on. And yeah, yeah. Well, if you um, if you're serious about getting one of those mega games um, on, whether that's uh, in the near future or post-retirement, uh, Robert, I will be, I, I'm not kidding, I will be the first person to sign up, so keep me in the loop over that. Yeah, I will do. Jason Collis, um, whom I get together with on a you know, um, fairly regular basis, he lives over near Reading, and he's friends with the person who puts on, they, they've got a kind of big war games um, convention hall, in the area, so he he's got access to him, and and we can you know book that, and uh, yeah, we get all the you know operational maps ready and all that sort of stuff. I think it'd be awesome. It, it absolutely will be awesome. I look forward to that. Right, thanks once again. I won't keep you any no, longer, no Robert. It's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully, 
um sometime down the line you'll come back on and uh regale us all again with uh yeah love to what you've been up to is that all right yeah, yeah of course love to yeah yeah not been Go too ahead. not been too painful Oh, not at all. No, I, I never mind this sort of thing at all. It's fun. <laughs> right, Robert, you enjoy the rest of your evening, and I you shall too. speak to you very soon. Take care, Sean. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye now.